Welcome to the Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. We are excited to have Dr. Marquita Evans of Bloomfield College as our guest. Well, how about, why don't we start with this? So are, are you in your office right now? I am. Okay, so maybe, maybe take a few minutes to talk about paintings or pictures or vases, sure. something that really is kind of memorable and maybe you have a story behind it. Definitely. Uh, my office, I, I usually have student artwork all around my office. And this actually is, I was in San Antonio, Texas. So it's the three Fridas, uh, you know, and I have three daughters. Uh, I have more than three because I have a couple stepdaughters too as well. But I love it because again, you have the heart, the dove, the butterfly, and it really kind of signifies my three daughters. And usually the one that's in the front is the oldest and the other two are giving her the side eye. That usually is what happens with my girls. <laughs> it's like the two against the one. So, uh, you know, I have student art, uh, you know, over here as well. Again, being that we're a Hispanic serving institution. And I have one that's really a powerful one that uh, the person is an Afro-Latina, but it's really dark, but blonde hair. And people kept telling her, but you don't look like you're Latina. And, you know, just the tears coming down, having to justify her identity over and over again. So mm -hmm. it's usually senior artwork. And I try to purchase it from them using when they're doing their senior exhibit and then have it put up around the office in different places. I love it. That's great. So you really don't have any time, do you? How many kids again? <laughs> really, it's a total of six, but they're all grown and gone. My okay. youngest is 32. Got it. Okay. Okay. Yes. yes. Well, let's talk a little bit about your journey to the presidency. Uh, was this your goal to be a president of a higher ed institution? It became my goal. I will tell you, um, I grew up in Alabama, raised primarily by my grandparents. Um, my stepfather was in the Air Force, so my you know parents moved around quite a bit. And, uh, you know, I grew up in the, the 60s. I know I look good, right? Uh, in the 60s. And, you know, again, education was seen by my grandparents as being the key, specifically for people of color that, you know, she'd always say, baby, once you get your education, no one can take that from you. They can take your house, your car, the clothes off your back. But once your mind is freed and educated, no one can ever take that from you. So, you know, education was always seen uh, as, as, as a mandate actually uh we used to say you know even if we got sick unless we were ready to go to the hospital and die we were still going to go to school so that was not even you know like oh you don't feel well you can stay home no that did not happen in my household um so you know education was seen it was seen as a, uh, as a privilege but also a responsibility and so um you know i was very uh, motivated because uh, again i wanted to please my grandparents and actually they ended up eventually legally adopting me and um, I graduated from high school at 16, went off to school. Uh, I was going to go uh, become a real doctor, uh, as they say back then. I was a biology chemistry major. But I was in, in, in high school, I was in a humanities honors program and not a STEM-based program. So I went off to college uh, to a small HBCU in Huntsville, Alabama. And um, I was not used to struggling. And organic chemistry was not my friend. And so uh, as a result of that, I ended up switching and moving into psychology, uh, eventually into rehabilitation counseling. And I started seeing then too, though, Brad and JP, that a lot of young people that look like me were not getting good counseling, not getting good advice as to how to navigate higher ed. And it became my position at that point in time that I really wanted to have an impact. So I went into counseling. Uh, I worked with kids with special needs specifically 
And then it just kept going and building my education. I got a degree in elementary, I had another master's degree, and eventually got my PhD in counseling. Became a faculty member. And as a faculty member, again, I saw the people that were leading didn't look like me, whether it was gender or race, ethnicity. And I start checking the boxes, even though student affairs is my passion, academic affairs and moving up in administration became my mission. All the way to, again, not just having a seat at the table, wanting to be at the head of the table as a president. I love that. I love that. So talk a, talk a minute about counseling. Sure. Can you talk about how important it is from a counseling standpoint to really be able to interact and really impact a student's life? What does that mean to you? Oh, it means absolutely everything. Um, <clears throat> you know, the whole thing about counseling is giving people the, the, the tools and the skills to problem solve for themselves, right? Not just to come to you. Also having someone that they can relate to that maybe understands a little bit about their circumstances. You know, here at Bloomfield College, we're a predominantly black institution and we're a Hispanic serving institution. 52% of my students are first generation, the first in their family, right? The median family income for my students is just under $32,000. Don't know how that's possible in New Jersey for a median family income. And so when the students come here and they see a president that looks like me, whether it's my gender or race ethnicity, and maybe coming from similar backgrounds as, as they're, they're coming from, they can see and say, okay, if Dr. Evans can do this, I can as well. So I have an open door policy. I sit in the cafeteria pretty much every day. I have uh, some of my students who call me auntie or, you know, I don't let them call me grandma, but you know, I'll go with the auntie part, <laughs> auntie part. But you know, it's about the connections and having the good interpersonal skills, reading the nonverbals. Um, and it really came into play during the pandemic. Our students have suffered the mental health that's happening across the nation. But especially with, with my demographics, I've had one student lose nine family members due to the virus. And so it's just been devastating. So I've used my um, counseling skills. Uh, I think that's the reason why I ended up here at Bloomfield at this time was to really help this community deal with some of the disproportionate uh, impacts, I think, that the virus was having on the black and brown community in New Jersey. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So how do you, you know, right now, you know, the job market is, is pretty vibrant. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of positions that are in demand. Mm -hmm. um, and I know when we talk to other presidents and institutions, one of the challenges is um, really making sure that students understand the value of- Welcome the to the Places Presidential Podcast Series. Paying money. We are excited to have Sometimes Dr. Marquita Evans yeah. so of how do you Bluefield make sure College as our guest. Course versus jumping to a job that pays money and they, you know, a student may look at, at, at that job and go, hey, I can go make money right now instead of, you know, falling behind in debt. How do you make sure they stay the course? Now, again, you have to think about the dynamics of my students. Most of my students are already working two to three jobs just to go to school and also to support their families. They also know that the job they're working is not the job of their passion of what they want to do for the rest of their lives. Um, you know, I have students working at the FedEx plant or the Amazon plant or whatever. And yes, they could potentially move up, but if you want to again go into criminal justice, if you want to go again, go into accounting or whatever, that's what you're saying your dream is, then that's what we're going to help, help get you to by again, attaining your education. Unfortunately, a lot of my students have to stop out and work and then come back. So again, their past is not necessarily the traditional four year, six year graduation rate. 
uh, they're having to make different types of decisions. Uh, we're doing a uh, completer project. We're not calling it a dropout project, but a completer project of students that have gotten maybe up to six credit hours left to graduate. That again, it wasn't a GPA issue. It may be a financial aid issue that's keeping them from finishing. How do we get them to the finish line? You know, we have a hundred students right now that we're trying to figure out. We know they haven't graduated from anywhere else. They didn't go anywhere else. And they're that close to finishing the, the, their degree. What can we do? How can we support them and get them back in and get them done, right? That's the completed project. So, you know, we started looking at that and talking about the value of an education. You know, there's research, there's stats, but really it's the buy-in of us being a small family-based campus as well that I know your name, I know your grandmother, I know, you know, I shop in the same places that you do. It makes a difference, you know. Uh, connections, relationships, we know students stay on campus, we retain them, they graduate more. If they establish relationships with faculty or staff, they stay at the college campus and can see the value of the education. Well, and yeah, let's talk a little bit about the relationships, right? You're clearly very, very <laughs> passionate. and. When you look at relationships in the community, you know, mm -hmm. relationships among alums, but also businesses, how, how does Bloomfield foster partnerships with businesses and the local community? Beating the streets, <laughs> you know, again, dealing with alumni, dealing with, again, faith-based institutions, because again, who we are, uh, we're private, started off as a Presbyterian seminary. Uh, but again, we're very non-denominational as far as a campus is concerned, even though we have a chaplain, we have a gospel choir. Uh, again, thinking about my demographics, it is contacts, relationships, uh, knowing the NAACP, we just started NAACP chapter here on campus, uh, working with La Raza or uh, Hispanic Leadership uh, Chamber of Commerce, all those different types of things, knowing again, the types of students that I serve, that I have to be out there where family members can see me, they can talk to me, touch me or whatever, because again, a lot of hugging goes on typically, uh, you know, uh, just showing the connection. And that's important, even with the businesses. Bloomfield is in the midst of uh, a township. So we have no real boundaries or borders to our campus, which is good or bad sometimes, because people just walk through the campus kind of randomly. Um, it's, it's a town and gown. So you have to know the mayors, you have to know, and it's so many little townships in New Jersey. So we have Bloomfield, we have Glen Ridge, we have Montclair, all within five miles of each other on Bloomfield Avenue. So, you know, uh, it's, it's just making those connections, Brad, and, and making sure that our students have an opportunity to do internships or practicums uh, and just connections. And that's critical for their success. So you mentioned, uh... Montclair State. Um, that now, from what I understand, there's an alliance that's been formed. Yes, yes. Between Bloomfield and Montclair. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, we're actually, you know, finalizing it and working on the model. And hopefully by the end of the, the summer, we'll have something a little bit more concrete. But, you know, here in the Northeast, a lot, and not just the Northeast, I think across the nation, a lot of small liberal arts institutions are struggling. And especially those that are minority serving, when the virus hit, that first fall of 2020, I lost 300 students. They just didn't come back. And I was expecting actually an 8.6% increase in enrollment before that with deposited students from the spring of new students coming in. But again, it just decimated our community. So you think about all these small liberal arts institutions uh, here 
a lot of them are struggling. We know that they're struggling. I just decided to go public with my struggle. Uh, maybe it's my counseling background again. I'm not suffering in silence. Uh, we're gonna all suffer together, <laughs> you know, or have a conversation about this. And I think too, when people look at the mission of our campus and who we serve, I knew that there would be someone out there that would not let us fail. And I'm a spiritual person too. And I said, Lord, I know you didn't bring me all the way from San Antonio, Texas for this college to fail. So what you gonna do for me? So, you know, so having that kind of conversation and putting it out there, actually we had over 30 universities, organizations that reached out to us and said they wanted to help from all over the nation, from California to Florida to Maine. Uh, and it was really, I think it, it really gave me hope that again, that there are people out there that once you can talk about it, and a lot of times we don't, that wanted to help. And so we had actually eight institutions to formally submit a proposal to us. And Montclair is literally right up the street, you know, what, what five miles from us in their minority serving institution. And they have a new dynamic president that's coming from Arizona State uh, University. And he's into innovation, into servant leadership in the community. It's the perfect fit. So I'll let I'll take you back here just a bit. So when we talk about kind of your journey and as you move forward, I think you've already mentioned a few mentors, but maybe talk a little bit more in detail about who are, not even were, who are your mentors today that have really helped shape you? Yeah, you know, I kind of differentiate between mentors and sponsors, right? And so for me, there have been people throughout my life uh, that have mentored me or guided me, uh, whether it's been professors, uh, friends in the community, other academics as well, uh, my peers. And uh, again, I've been very active in my professional association. I was a president of the American Counseling Association. So that led me to another type of leadership of service as well. Um, so, you know, look around, I've even had an executive coach to kind of help me you know, through the process. But when I talk about sponsorship too is, you know, you look at me being a female and being a female of color and then wanting to pursue a presidency. It wasn't just to have a presidency. It was, again, I had a whole little box. My husband and I set up, set up of metrics of what type of institution do we want to serve? Because really as a couple, as a partner, it is a service for both of us, right? And so, um, you know, we had, what, you know, I, I wanted to be near water. I wanted to be, again, a minority serving institution. I had all these different variables that I was looking at. Uh, and it was really funny that when Bloomfield College came along, it was not really one that fit my box that I had because I was going to be at a, hopefully, a, I was thinking a larger institution than 1500. But again, things happen for a reason. And I ended up here at Bloomfield College. So, um, I had professionals where I attend certain academies or whatever, and when jobs would pop up, they would say, Marquita, look at this, or what do you think about that? I think you'll be really a good fit here. So that whole mentor sponsorship, it came, Brad, from so many different places that, again, when people know what you want, um, you're not shy about expressing it. They appreciate why you want to do it. People, again, are willing to help you and guide you and tell you what you need to do. So you mentioned that you have a number of students that are working multiple jobs. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about um, online programs yeah. or online or the future of online uh, at Bloomfield? What does that look like? 
you know, before the pandemic, uh, we had a lot of quite a few faculty that were not excited about online, uh, you know, teaching. And um, what the good thing from the pandemic is that now they're not afraid of it. I think really it was this, you're used to doing something one way and you've done it that way for 10 to 15 years. And when one asks someone asks you to do something different, then it's like, oh no, you know, I don't wanna do that. Well, when, you know, um, what was it? April of 2020 happened, everyone had to pivot. You know, we had some faculty that didn't really look, even look at their emails. So let alone teach online, that was a big transformation for them. Um, I've always been a proponent of online education. Um, I'm actually one of the first counselors in the United States that was certified as a distance credentialed counselor, only because I felt like it was gonna be the future, right? And so um, I took some classes, even in my program, when it was archaic uh, online classes and we don't have the technology that we have now, again, thinking that this is going to be the future. We are here now. And I will tell you though, as far as when it happened, some students really thrived in that setting and some really struggled. Um, my students are what I call high touch. Again, they wanna be in the classroom, they wanna see the faculty and actually the faculty want to see them. Because again, you can get the nonverbals and say, hmm, Marquita, you look like you're puzzled. Are you getting what I'm saying? Or is there something more you wanna ask a question or whatever? You can still get that online, but it was a, such a high learning curve for faculty and students to be online at the beginning. Um, it was a struggle. Now though, people are getting their footing. We had some training on dealing with you know, the best online pedagogy on how to actually set up your class, make it interactive, how to be engaging with your students. That it really has transformed a lot of faculty's, um, uh, I guess, hesitancy to want to teach online. And uh, the students are now getting better at learning online, right? We found out that we having synchronous classes are better than asynchronous because they have a set time to know when to take the class and the faculty has a set time as to when they're gonna teach the class. So, you know, we've learned a lot. Um, I think it's, it's still gonna be here, but I think face-to-face -face is kind of gonna be coming back too as well. Mm -hmm. So um, talk to me a little bit about the space grant, academic affiliation. Um, your, your affiliation, I believe, with the National Space Program not that I know of. I don't remember that one. Uh, okay. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's in my mind. Maybe I've gone spacey. I'm not quite sure. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know we got a couple of recent uh, PBI grants. Uh, I don't okay. know if that's what you're referring to. And we did get uh, NSF, uh, but that's dealing with chemistry in the chemistry lab, not space that I know of. But, you know, it might be something I haven't heard of yet that we've got that I don't know, I'm not just cognizant of, so. No, no, and that's okay, that's okay. So where do you think, with Bloomfield College, where do you see the school being, where, where are you gonna be in 10 years? Oh, goodness. I hope where we're going to be is, again, Bloomfield College, whether it's Bloomfield College of Montclair State University or whatever, still focus on the students that we're serving now. Uh, expanding that. We've had to, because again of, of the virus, we've had to discontinue. We had quite a vibrant international program. And that of course has not come back yet. Uh, we're only again, 15 miles from the city. You can literally see it across the water. And so exposing our students to a lot of different cultural opportunities uh, that still needs to stay. Um, what I'm hoping in 10 years that again, that we're set 
we're firm as far as our finances is concerned. We know our sweet spot. We're gonna be a college. We wanna focus on the undergraduate experience of students of getting them in, recruiting them, retaining them and graduating them in the field in which they got the degree in. You know, again, being a parent of six, I always say, you know, we wanna get you a good job with good insurance, you know, uh, and that's my goal. That, that's kind of the, the end goal. Same things for the students here, that it's, it's time and money well spent. And that's the, and, and the experience that they get here is going to be like no other place that they could have gotten it. This school has been around since 1869. 68. 68. There you go. To German Presbyterian Church. Tell our listeners a little bit about the history. It's come a long way, the very rich heritage. It has. Again, starting off as a Presbyterian seminary, um, you know, the, the, the historical growth of where we are being, again, about seven miles north of Newark, if you're familiar with the demographics of New Jersey, um, the campus has evolved over the years. I would say probably in the 70s and 80s, the demographics started changing from a predominantly white institution to being who we are now, as I mentioned again, uh, predominantly black institution and also Hispanic serving. About 90% of my students are students of color. And so uh, that's been a gradual transition. There are no HBCUs in New Jersey. We're the only four year PBI and HSI in the state. So uh, again, gradual transition. Moving from Newark, again, if you know the demographics of Newark, you can see the change that's happening here. And then across the, the nation as well, you know, the grounding of the United States. And so thus that's becoming Hispanic serving as well. And, and, and you know, on Plexus, you actually ranked the second most uh, influential and ranked second in liberal arts colleges in New Jersey. So I think it's you and, and Drew on top, right. uh, on top of the heap. Um, when you think about the challenges facing institutions in general, right? What, what do you see as the, the type of challenges that institutions are facing in your long career in higher education? The, the main challenge that I think right now is people thinking outside of the box. I think, you know, higher education is like a big elephant. It, it's hard to pull, it's hard to change, it's hard to pivot like it needs to. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there's so much that we could do together, but everybody's kind of burying their heads in the sand or thinking you don't know that they're in trouble when we know that you're in trouble. Why not come together as a group of even the independent private institutions that are minority serving? Um, HR is the same HR is here as it is at Drew, as it is at St. Elizabeth's, whatever. Technology is the same at all those institutions. Why are we trying to do everything at our small campuses by ourselves instead of working as a consortium or as a collaborative and having uh, power with numbers, right? But again, you know, I try to talk to the other presidents. Uh, they all agree, but then no one wants to do anything or move forward with it, right? And it's so frustrating. But for me, it's almost seen as a, a, a mark of, of uh, weakness that you don't wanna talk about what's happening in higher education right now. We know in the whole sector of the Northeast, I always say they stop having babies. So the pool of students that's gonna be out there is gonna be less and less. So how do we differentiate ourselves and not try to be everything to everybody and figure out what our sweet spot is? That conversation 
is going to have to happen or some of these schools are going to close. Since we've made our announcement, three institutions have called me and in the midst of them making announcements, they're closing their doors either in May or in August. And it is such a great tragedy because some of them have been around as long as we have, 150 years, right? Wow. But, you know, again, I knew this even before the, the uh, virus hit. I started looking at, you know, P3 partnerships. What can we do, again, to partner? Because, you know, my strength, I have two people in my HR office. My technology is hanging on by the grace of God, you know, whatever. I know I needed to do something different. So I contracted with NJ Edge. They're handling our uh, technology for us. I started looking at other ways we could partner with other institutions. You know, the challenge right now is people, uh, how can I say this in a really nice way? Um, not being so um, scared to say that you need help. Having the courage to ask for help. Exactly. That's yeah. a nice way to reframe it. Thank you. Having the courage versus being scared. <laughs> well, I'm listening so I get a chance to process, right? Um, yes. and, and, and so, you know, the enrollment cliff mm -hmm. you know, is not new. I mean, if you look at the 70s, right? I mean, that, that whole paper that Aspen and Lee did on invisible colleges, exactly. um, it, it, you know, they, the 70s went through it. So it's, it's kind of coming back. Uh, but what you know, that, that's, a, that's a new challenge, but are you seeing challenges for the first time that, that, that weren't around the last 20 years? Are, are, are there things that the you're only, seeing for the first time? The only challenge that I'm really seeing is, again, that keeps me up at night is dealing with technology and ransomware. Uh, we've seen uh, more and more of that on campuses, uh, and especially the smaller ones that don't have the resources to kind of, you know, uh, fight back, so to speak. Um, but, you know, for me, and again, the students that I serve, it's pretty much the same of them, uh, you know, getting them in, believing that they can do this, having the resource, dealing with retention and the graduation rate, and making sure, again, that what we're teaching them is what the industry needs, right? And the industry now is saying, okay, you can't teach something from 15 years ago because we're pivoting or changing so fast in the industry. We need students that can think critically, that can work in groups. Uh, be agile, all those kinds of things. And so that's kind of a difference there. And also I think from probably 20 years ago, the loyalty or thinking that people will stay in just one job or one company, people don't have to do that anymore, right? People are learning to work remotely. Uh, they go from one job to the next, depending on what kind of uh, benefits and incentives you may have. And that's a little bit different than the way, you know, again, 20 to 30 years ago, we were working with students. And we recently had a, a presidential symposium, mm -hmm. three female presidents and, 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 and Dr. Kimbrough from Central Baptist College, as well as the CTO of Texas Instruments, who were part of the symposium. And one of the issues that percolated from that discussion was artificial intelligence. So we're trying to also train students for jobs that we don't exactly know what they're going to look, look exactly. like, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yep, yep. So that's why we have something called meta majors too, as well, that mm -hmm. you're not just focused on one major. It may be a group of majors that can help you no matter what job you're in to be able to adapt quick, you know, quickly uh, learn and, and, and to pivot. As I said earlier, that's going to be really important. You know, if you're going to do like my way, the only way it's not going to work. Things are moving much too fast for that. 
Well, as an undergrad philosophy major, I, I appreciate liberal arts, right? I, I think in a world that's getting more and more complicated, liberal arts has a bigger play to play and not a smaller not place to play. Would you like to expand on that? Oh yeah, most definitely. Again, when people think about the liberal arts, what are we exposing our students to? How are we opening their minds? And then the whole experience of our students here on campus. Here's something really kind of just inconsequential, but it's important for my students. We had an etiquette uh, class for our students on when you go for your interviews, how you should be, how you should dress, all those kinds of things, simple. And then we took our students last night to a wonderful dinner at one of our uh, ritziest hotels here uh, and, and restaurants called the High Line, where you can overlook and see into the city. You know, I think about that experiences and whole illiberal arts experience that our students are having. It's how do you expose them to so many different types of things, something as simple as a business dinner and where to put your napkin, what fork to use. I know it sounds really simplistic, but it's not, right? It's the comfort of, and again, for my students, they've never even had this type of experience before, right? And so when we take them to, we go to Broadway or uh, again, dealing with the world from a global perspective, all that is not just focused on you being a criminal justice major or you getting your degree in psychology, it's broadening your worldview, it's broadening your experiences. We had other students from other universities that were participating in the dinner as well. And that in and of itself are the connections and relationships. Um, it's a value that you don't get if you just focus in on one simple thing through, again, we want them to be work ready. Okay, that's important. But we also want them to have this transformative servant leadership type of experience that we want them to have here at Bloomfield College. That's beautiful. Um, and and I, I know you mentioned a lot of the strength that Bloomfield has to offer. Could you talk about what distinguishes Bloomfield from other universities in your region as students start looking? I know there's a lot of similarities, but I, I, I think it's, you know, when people say, how do you differentiate from all the other 4,000 colleges? I think that's just too broad and it's not applicable. But how do you distinguish from other universities in the region? I would say me. <laughs> as being that important tool that we bring to the table. But the Absolutely. faculty, the staff, the experiences, the connections. You know, in New Jersey, they talk a lot about out-migration, about students will come here, go to school, and then leave and go other places. My students don't. My students are connected still to the community. Um, they're connected to finding a place here. And um, Bloomfield is that small family feel. If you talk to any of my students, I'll bring them in here. And um, the new president or the president of Montclair State came over last week and we had a town hall just with the students. And he asked them the question, why did you all choose Bloomfield College? And what's keeping you here at Bloomfield College? And the reason why he asked those two questions is because whatever it is, we don't want to lose it even when we talk about this new alliance and relationship that we're gonna have with Montclair State that has over 20,000 students, right? Mm -hmm. And the first thing that the students said was again, was the connections, they felt like they belong, they felt like they were heard and they felt like they were seen. And those things, when you have that in place, psychology is psychology no matter what institution you go to, it's the same intro to psychology book, right? 
is how do you explain this and how do you relate the students to their backgrounds, to the information or content that you're teaching. So when they have an environment where they can have that here at Bloomfield College, like I said, there's no other institution with our demographics in the state of New Jersey. And so I think that sets us aside. It also, also uh, I think, gave value to the state of New Jersey because now we're actually getting funding from the governor. And everybody's like, Marquita, how did you make that happen? Well, I think the value of who we are and what we bring to New Jersey is what's setting us apart. Fantastic. I, I definitely think that you make a difference because ultimately, you know, what we've seen in presidential leadership, it, it, it trickles down, right? Especially if you're de dealing with, you know, students who don't come from, uh, they come from various backgrounds. So they, yes. they need that high touch. I, I just read a, a work by uh, a great author about my sister's keeper, right? And, and she was talking about this work about how mentorship for, you know, black women is not just talking, but it's someone uh, understanding and connecting uh, to the needs on a much deeper level. So it's not a formula, okay, I just filled out this box and I talked to a student, but I connected with that student. And am I understanding this correctly? You connect with the students. It goes beyond just serving, you know, and, and filling out a box. Right, exactly. I mean, before I came, the students didn't even know who the president's office was. <laughs> Some of you didn't even know who the president was as well, let alone the office. Um, you know, I'm visible, I'm engaged. Uh, I didn't have to go to the dinner last night and other school presidents didn't come. I was there um, because it's important for my students to know that you matter, right? And so in the midst of that though, actually it had me end up in tears because this is, they asked me how I was doing, you know, I was, all this is happening with the college. And I'm like, don't start that because <laughs> I'm a crybaby, right? Uh, this is wanna make sure you are okay. And again, that goes back to the caring of the relationship that, you know, I pour into them, but they pour into me as well, you know, and so, uh, and it's about being connected with them. What are, what are your top three priorities as, as you look at the year ahead? It's got to be, again, getting this merger alliance or relationship with Montclair State done. Uh, us maintaining our name, Bloomfield College us maintaining our mission has to be because we don't educate these students that we have here. They may not go anywhere else. They might not see higher education as a, as a viability for them, you know, as an option for them. And so my mission is again, trying to get this job done ASAP and as painless as possible. Um, even it's not just for the students, it's for the whole community. We have here faculty that have been here totally committed to serving our students and staff, same thing, right? So my job, again, is to be that tool, that resource, that voice, to make sure that the whole collective gets taken care of as much as possible. Uh, knowing that reality is I'm gonna probably be working myself out of a job because there will not be two presidents, right? So what will my role be? Don't know, um, but I'm working with the new structure to figure that out, so. so uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, one of the, you know, some of the people who listen to our podcast are part of the governing board, a part of organization, board of trustees. Mm -hmm. So could you share with us as they're looking for their next presidents, uh, what unique skills they should consider in hiring the next college president or university president? I think 
the main thing is understanding the culture of your campus and mm-hmm. finding that person um, that will fit into the culture. Also looking at your strategic plan, who can help guide you and take you to that next level or put you on that, you know, uh, follow the roadmap of your strategic plan to get you there, you know. Um, now, again, if you want to become an R1 institution, do you need a president that has an R1 background? Maybe, because again, you want the perspective of the faculty. But also, again, remember, you have a great provost. You have other people that are doing the job as far as enrollment management is concerned. Um, do you want someone that can be more relational? And I'm, I guess I'm that relational person uh, that if that's what you want in your culture, then that's what you look for in the, in the presidency. If your staff morale is low, why is it low? Because again, if you have a president that focuses only on the faculty and not the staff and not the whole collective, then you're gonna have a problem. So you really need to do an environmental scan and see what are the strengths of your campus and what are the weaknesses and how can you bring in the president as a tool to mitigate the weaknesses and build on the strengths. It's, it's really as simple as that, in my opinion. And last message to all of our listeners, what would it be? Ooh, education is the key. I still believe it. I had a student tell me um, once, Dr. Evans, you know, you keep saying education is the key, but they keep changing the lock on us. And mm-hmm. I'm like, sweetheart, it just kind of made me think for a second. What do you mean? Well, you know, we go down this path, we do this thing or whatever. And then when we get to that point, then it says, oh no, you need to do something else, right? And I think the, the last message I would say is education is still the key, but again, the flexibility of knowing how our students need to pivot through their educational experience. Because as I said, once your mind is free and you're educated, oh my God, it opens up the doors for every single thing. So be passionate about it be engaged with your students and your faculty and your staff. Um, Make sure that all tides or all boats are rising. Uh, That's, I think, what's critically important because everybody needs to feel valued in the system. Dr. Evans, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you you so much. Sure. Well, this